0: Hello and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest, Holly Ringland, has written what is touted to be the biggest Australian fiction release of the year, a debut novel, no less, The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart. Holly, welcome. I'm so happy to have oh, you on the show. Oh, Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Um, now, before we begin chatting, can I ask you please to open the show by just reading a little from The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart? Oh, I
1: would be honoured. I would love to. Um, I'm going to read you a little piece from early on in the novel, and uh, I'll say no more. Late afternoon sunlight poured into the cab. Alice started. She'd fallen asleep without realising. Dried tears cracked in the corners of her eyes, and there was a kink in her neck. She straightened up and stretched. Harry licked her hand. She let him. She was too tired to push him away again. No longer on the highway, they were bouncing noisily along a rough dirt track. A pink bruise had formed on her knee, where it had knocked against the door handle as the truck jostled over bumps and dusty pockmarks. Alice craved salty sea air. June had her window down, one tanned elbow resting on the open sill. Her grey curls moved gently in the wind. Alice studied her profile. June didn't look anything like her father, but felt so familiar. When she tucked a curl behind her ear, the silver bracelets strangled on her wrist. From each one, a small charm dangled with a pressed yellow petal inside. She glanced at Alice, who was too slow at acting asleep. You're awake. Through the blur of her pretend sleep eyelashes, Alice saw June smile and shake the bracelets on her wrist. Do you like them? I made these myself. All the flowers, they come from my farm. Alice turned her head away to look out the window. Each flower is a secret language. When I wear a combination of flowers together, it's like I'm writing my own secret code that no one else can understand unless they know my language. Today I thought I'd wear just one flower. A muscle twitched in Alice's cheek. June changed down gears, the bracelets chiming in response. Want to know what they mean? I'll tell you the secret. Ta <laughs> <laughs> And I will not leave anyone in misery. The flower that June is wearing is the butterfly bush flower and in the Thornfield. field Uh, dictionary in the Thornfield language of flowers it means second chances
0: Mm. now I'm I'm, I'm sure you've been asked this question before but I have to ask it anyway Um, yeah please this whole notion of the language of flowers did that Mm. precede the book or did it almost come about as as part of the process of writing the book I mean did you actually grow up knowing the language of flowers Was that something for you (laughs) no um, it did It did precede
1: the book, and no, I didn't grow up knowing this language as well. The Thornfield Dictionary um, and all of its meanings. I made up as I was writing this novel, which was, it just felt like an incredible honour and a very beautiful thing to do and to spend my hours working, doing, because it gave such balance. It was such light to the dark in writing the book. Um but the notion of Australian native flowers having, um, emotive meaning and emotional, you know, expression, that, that did precede actually writing the novel. Um, I was raised by, by women in gardens, my grandmother and my mum, um, you know, throughout sort of feast and famine cycles in life, I've known them both always to turn to the garden. So in a, in a conscious and subconscious way, I grew up from the time I was a very little girl, um, sort of watching these women that I revered go into patches of dirt and turn it into something that bloomed and was alive. And I think that that really soaked through my imagination as I grew up from a little girl. Um, And the language, making up a language of flowers... um, that I, I came across that, I was living in England, I, I spent most of the year um, in England, my partner Sam is English, and I met him over there when I moved over to Wright, so that's what I'm doing in England, Just with people knowing that I'm from Queensland with the lush tropical flowers and vegetation and that sort of thing, and then people are like, you're living in Manchester, like <laughs> the, the northwest of England, yes. um, and so I kind of have to give context to that. Um, but while I was in England researching at the very sort of pre-conscious stages of this book in 2013, I started writing it in 2014, um, I was researching trauma and creative writing. Part of that was researching the motive and the idea of voice and language. I was looking at how children process trauma um, and kids who experience PTSD Um, Children are so disempowered in their lives anyway because they're not independent, they're not able to be. Um, Selective muteness is often a way that kids um, can respond to PTSD. Their brains will just just stop speaking as a way to protect themselves um, while they're processing or just dealing with um, a traumatic event. And Alice doesn't speak for a while at the beginning of the novel. In doing that research about voice and language, being in England, I think my Google Scholar, um, <laughs> my Google Scholar search engine, brought up the English Victorian language of flowers, um, which I I always knew that flowers had symbology and you know they've been used in ancient times, um, Egypt, Turkey. You know Shakespeare constantly referenced them. Um, But I came across this very specific time in European history when Queen Victoria reigned, when this language of flowers was so popular, it swept England and Europe to the point where people had this dictionary. People would have dictionaries in their sort of upper-class homes um, where to express emotional thought to each other because socially it was too awkward and hard to actually say to someone, I love you or I kind to you or uh, anything so vulnerable and true that, you know, and I just, this still makes me chuckle. God bless the English and how they express (laughs) emotion. They would send each other enormous elaborate bouquets and the, the language of flowers was so popular that they would decode what a tulip meant or what a hyacinth meant or a rose in that expression and the thing that gripped me the most was that people sent each other these bouquets not just to express beautiful things, but also to express things like "I hate you," "You have you have broken my heart," a, "You know a curse upon your house," that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> so poisonous box gloves would be in a bouquet to sort of say, "You know, I wish I wish every evil upon you." That's what it is. and so that concept of how we manage to find a way to express our emotions to each other, even if we can't verbally, uh, you know, even if we can't vocalise them. And combined with the fact that that truly was flowers for a time in European culture, that just hooked onto my mind. So when I started writing this book um, and Alice was in the garden with her mother, it was one of those thunderstruck moments when I thought I'm going to make up a language of, Australian
0: native flowers. Mm. How wonderful! Yeah. And and then you link that, of course, to you know this whole other world of sort of Aboriginal mythology and absolutely, uh, yeah. And I guess this this kind of um, female versus male, not even female versus male, but perhaps patriarchy or toxic masculinity versus kind yes. non-verbal understanding and responsiveness.
1: Mm. Mm. Yeah, I really. To write a book like this that is embedded in Australian landscapes using Australian flora, it was an essential responsibility. I felt an essential responsibility, particularly after the four years that I spent living in the central desert, um, that that this book couldn't be a whitewashed telling of Australia. So there are people of multiple cultures who are all Australian in the novel and then there are particular um, references to um, Anangu and Pitinjara, which are the people and language uh, of a specific area in the Northern Territory, because a lot of the like wherever appropriate in the novel, a lot of the um, the flowers that I've used, I've also referenced their name in Pitinjara and um, they've had medicinal uses for time immemorial, which in itself is a is a way of storytelling, of course. So I, you know, I didn't want to go anywhere near. Um, of course, like rewriting that or avoiding that. So um, that felt like a major, uh, a major responsibility with the story to, to you know, encompass that and take note of that and include it, just like the folk tales of India and Bulgaria and um, Mexico that are also in the novel. Yes.
0: And to bring in Ali Kamiakam um, and poetry as well, um, is, oh,
1: I know. You know. Just that was that is still having Ali's poem in there. That that's still something that gives me goosebumps. It's so wonderful.
0: Yeah, and, and, mm. and you know, breaks down too. I guess the these structures of you, you know binaries, um, prose versus poetry, pros mm. or you know, uh, different types of political language versus uh, you know much more empathetic and complex language of poetry. So, I mean, just wonderful to bring that complexity into the book in such a way. Yeah, some I feel that way too. Yeah. Mm. So the, the, did you feel, um, that you needed to leave Australia to be able to kind of explore some of those complex notions to almost have that little yeah. calm sickness?
1: I, it's funny, I, it, because it wasn't a conscious thing. Um, I mean, when I moved over to Australia, uh, sorry, England, when I left Australia and moved over to England in 2009, um, I did that because I wanted to combine um, my love of travel that I've had since I was a kid when my, my parents took me overseas and opened my, work, my mind to the world. Um, I wanted to combine travel with the desire that I've had since I was three to be a writer and at 29, um, I was still, <laughs> still pining to be a writer. And so I left Australia because um, at that time in my life, it was, it was really the only thing that I felt like I could do to save myself really was to go and, and give this dream the one thing in my life that has never, ever, ever changed or waned was I, I've always wanted to be a writer. That was something in my sort of inner dialogue. Um, I've lived, up until about 10 years ago, I've lived most of my life with male-perpetrated violence across various relationships in my life. And as anybody who has experienced trauma of any kind will know that dealing with that, you know trauma it robs us of our courage and our voice and and our dreams you know because we're just so busy trying to get by um, and at at twenty nine um, I'd reached a point in my life where I realized that I didn't have a mortgage and I didn't have a baby and I wasn't anchored to any responsibility sort of greater than myself in Australia and I just very vividly knew that that um, the time had arrived. I, I had an opportunity. I had you know life savings that I'd earned from from working, and um, I thought I'm going to move to England and I'm going to go and give writing a crack. And I didn't know anyone, and I'd never been there before. And looking back on that now, I don't really know how I did that. But um, I was really driven. I was really driven by really. Really consciously and presently being aware that I had an opportunity to at least try, and I didn't think about what would come after Manchester because that was too terrifying. It was really like one step at a time. And so I moved over to England without consciously thinking, okay, I'm going to leave Australia so that I can write about Australia. I'm, you know, that was 2009. I didn't start writing a book until 2014.
0: <laughs> Look, I completely so understand. <laughs> I, I did the same thing, believe it or not. I actually went to England on my own as well. Not oh my as- god! Not from Australia, but from the US, and uh, and I didn't know anyone. So I I completely understand that. You know, I was young, yeah. attached to yeah, um, and I completely understand yes. that sort of sense of you know, both bravery and also, like, complete loss when you get there as to, you know, yes. oh, my God, where am I? Yes, <laughs> where yes exactly I? that. Where, where the heck am I? Exactly why, why that.
1: Here? I can remember rolling into Manchester. I was 29 and my friends at home, you know, were very um, sort of very stable and... Um, careers and maybe they bought a house or someone, you know, maybe was pregnant with, you know, with you know, first family. And I was in the orientation line post-grad at the University of Manchester to pick up my student flat keys. And I just remember thinking, oh, my God, what have I done? So those very vivid moments of exactly as you say, bravery, and enormous loss, um... But really driven, I think. I think that's how I learned to sit with discomfort. Yes. You know, yes. like in, in mindfulness terms, I think that experience is how I learned to be to be uncomfortable and know that I was still okay. Um,
0: Which is so. Good and so in our world, I think it's something that we, um, yeah, we all have to learn that. I mean, yes, writers, writers yeah. need to work with that discomfort, but. You know, just getting coming, becoming comfortable with discomfort is something. Becoming like those of us who don't regularly yeah. experience discomfort, you know,
1: as we yeah, do.
0: Yeah, people I think that I think that's so true for
1: Alice Hart as well. Like, I think that that's something that, um, particularly when she grows up and becomes an adult, I feel like because we're we're so much more conscious of discomfort. Like you were just saying about recognizing it. Um, we're so much more aware of it when we're older um, because maybe when we're younger, we've got that stubborn durability of youth that can just, like, push it away and, like, go to the happy place. And then once we're a bit older, we know that pushing it away sort of only takes you so far before it will circle around and find you again. And, and it feels to me like Alice sort of... I think she, she sits quite in that uncomfortable place when she's older. Even if she can't verbalize it, but, but it's always sort of simmering there in her yes. sort of just living with it. Yeah. It's and just, and it's I guess we're building
0: rebuilding too. We're building a language that mm. works.
1: Mm. We're building a world that yeah. is
0: that is not the one that oppressed that caused the trauma. But is you know it's exactly yeah. different.
1: Yes, yeah, that's a huge I think that's a huge thing, finding scaffolding for a for a new world outside of any traumatic framework. Mm. Um, and how to go about doing that and yeah. and who to and who to let in and who not to let in and what we might cherry pick from our past or not or um yeah, enormously complex this business of being human. <laughs> yeah, and,
0: and you know, wonderful Wonderfully played out in the book, I think. Um, perhaps Thank it's you. inevitable when you name a character Alice, <laughs> but I love the link to Alice in Wonderland. I mean, at one point, yeah. you know, she reads it and, it and it is a parallel for her, but um, it's almost as though her whole life is, is a kind of surreal Wonderland from which she's trying to. Yeah.
1: Approach. Yeah.
0: Mm. Were, were you thinking of Alice in Wonderland when you named her Alice, or did that just um, happen?
1: It's, yeah, so kind of like kind of like the flowers, I guess, rather than preceding it, Alice in Wonderland, that idea kind of came afterwards, um, like as I was writing it. I felt like I couldn't write a character Alice without, um, without sort of referencing Alice in Wonderland because it, it, I mean it fascinates so many of us and it, and it has endured in its fascination, um, that idea of, self discovery and identity in strangeness um and and magic and and streaminess. Um but the Alice in Wonderland references came after I'd started writing because in 2013 I think, the year before I actually put pen to paper and started the novel, I was thinking about writing this book and shadows and shapes and images were starting to gather in my imagination, and I knew that I would have a protagonist, and I knew that she was a she. I knew she was a female, and so um, you know, as you would know yourself, there can be such great delight in naming people and in finding the root meaning of their names to you as as the writer, and. I was in France, of all places. I was in rural France, uh, visiting family, and I was gazing out over this sort of French cottage garden, and I was just sort of reflecting on different landscapes that I've been lucky enough to be in and and live in over my life. And I was thinking about the time that I was living in the Northern Territory, and then just as your thoughts run kind of like a stream, I remember sitting there. I remember really clearly sitting there and thinking about how, for the time that I lived um, uh, in the Northern Territory, I lived about 500 kilometres south of Alice Springs. But kind of similarly, it's this human thing we do. Like, I've lived in Manchester the whole time I've been in England, but people often sort of say, oh, Holly's in London, because (laughs) London is, like, the main point of the UK. And while I was in the Territory, people were always saying, Holly's in the Alice. (laughs) How's the Alice? always in the Alice. And and so that name took on kind of a landscape to itself and a sense of place in my life. And so I was just thinking about uh, I was just thinking about that and that sort of pre conscious gravity and, and magnetism and meaning that Alice the name has had in in you know, my world. And then um, that just, you know, again, as your thoughts run, that got me to thinking about living in the centre. And at the time, the first title, the title of this novel um, before publication was The Centre is Red. Um, and thinking about the centre of things and the centre of things being red, um, you know, and feelings and physical bodies and um, the hearts of flowers, then I thought about the heart. And I thought, but I don't want it to be spell heart. I'll, I'll take the E out. And that's how her name arrived before she did. And the references to Alice in Wonderland were just a wonderful, a wonderful synchronicity that happened later when I was, exactly as you were saying, Maggie, when Alice, like, for example, that, I think maybe the most potent time is when she leaves the, no spoilers, but when she she's leaving to go and live on the flower farm, and she's feeling pretty alienated. And one of the stories, one of the books that she has with her, is this story of a girl who falls into a strange land and tries to find her way home. And that that just felt like a really beautiful gift, actually, to be able to bring together with with my Alice Hart. It was. It's one of those geek highs when you're writing and um, it's like, oh, the synchronicity of that connection. (laughs) You know when you're alone, you're alone at your desk and you like fist pump the air, you have one of those, end of the breakfast club scene moment where you throw, yes. oh, my God, or maybe this is just me, maybe this is just me.
0: <laughs> no, it's a, it's a beautiful synchronicity. I think the whole flowers must have, you know, sort of progressed in that way too. Every time you, you came yes. across another language or another piece of puzzle yes. that you thought, oh, this is a good one.
1: Yes, yeah. And
0: it was a great, the the meanings of each
1: Australian native flower, um, I I was, I'm sort of inspired to choose the meanings by the really metaphoric value that the growing habits of the flowers have. Like, for example, the search desert pea, which is pretty prevalent in the novel, they are sort of notoriously um, fickle to propagate. Like, you know, you have to really goat on them to get them growing um, at home. Uh, once you do, though, they can just take off like wildfire and they will survive, not too heavy, but they will survive a little bit of frost. They survive sort of 50 degree temperatures in the desert. And reading about that and knowing that they're also a, a sort of creeper, they're a ground cover creeper, I thought, well, that feels like courage. You know, it's yes. like often impossible to get started or seemingly impossible to grow but once you do, it sort of spreads and can make things really beautiful. So, have courage, take heart, which is the meaning of the desert pea in the book. That's where that was inspired by.
0: And each flower is similar. They're kind of mm. an Alice heart themselves. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly, yeah. So, it's a um, kind of immersive aspect mm. to the whole floral theme, the, the physical beauty of the book, you know, the way you surrounded yourself with flowers through the tour, um, even mm. the tattoo. It's, it's the, the, there's a kind of visceral quality to the book mm. and the book's kind of presentation as artifact mm. that has its own language in a way.
1: Yeah, I think that's so true. I mean, someone asked me before publication. Someone, someone said to me um, quite a few months ago that it looked like I, I embodied that. I seemed like I was someone who embodied the story that I was in, and I think that's. I think that's right. Um, it doesn't feel like it's fully conscious, but um, and like I don't really have anything to compare this to because it's my first novel and it's certainly the first time that I've ever thrown myself into writing something with, with this degree of um, determination and grit and commitment, uh, even through all of the self-doubt and the, the raging inner critic and the fear and the self-loathing that goes with trying to sit down and, and, and follow the dream that you have to do the thing, to make the thing. And I think one of the things that gave me enormous courage was basically just turning myself physically into the book wherever possible. <laughs> and so that, that means that my vintage floral dress supply, like I can't fit them in my cupboard. I had never gotten a tattoo before. After I finished writing this book, before a publisher had even seen it, I went and got my forearm covered in a... <laughs> In a visual, symbolic representation of the story. And it um, gorgeous, I might add. <laughs> oh, thank you. So, I mean, I'm, I'm 100% biased. I love it so much, um, which is why I thank the artist, Samantha Smith, in the back of the novel because I, you know, I, I just need to – it's a strange feeling that I have. Like, I just need – and I'm – I'm sure I'm not alone in doing this, like I'm sure, you know, billions of other writers do this as well. In, in fact, I can remember years ago reading um, about Alice Hoffman, whenever she used to write um, books previously, there was a time I think where she she would repaint the colour of her office and if she was writing about, for example, autumn, she would cover the walls in autumn leaves and that sort of thing. Kind of like it's kind of like wearing your imagination on the outside, I guess, to sort of make it as real and valid as you can because, God, self-doubt is a force, isn't it? Mm,
0: like, For sure. We're yes. So,
1: yeah, and I think somehow it's, it's like armour but it's not armour because it's not that aggressive. Like it's not, I don't want to turn it into um, going into battle or going into war, like... Well, it's not—it's it, not, know, a, it's
0: not a, um, a warlike language. It's a, a floral language. It's a whole different yeah, way of communicating, isn't it? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: So, so, no, it has it's
1: been it has been—it's been a lot of fun. And I mean, who doesn't want to collect floral stuff? Yeah.
0: <laughs> do, do you feel <laughs> a bit? <laughs> do you feel a bit bereft, kind of, um, that you now that you're kind of at the tail end of the promotional process? Um, that, that, you know, the imperative to move on. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure that I probably
1: would feel bereft if this is where it ended. Um, but incredibly, I mean, you know, who am I kidding? I can't get my mind around this at all. I just sort of am floating along on the tide, just, you know, boggle eyes and grateful. But the book is being published around the world. And so, when I get back to the UK at the end of May, um, at the beginning of June, it's being published in Holland, in the Netherlands, Wonderful. and then it's been, you know, Slovakia, and then at the end of the June, at the end of June, it's the UK, and then in August, it's Canada. Um, so I feel like I've got some time to keep enjoying. I feel like I have justified an incredible time to keep enjoying. <laughs> Uh, the Floral Obsession, Maggie. Please join me. Please join me in Justified justified Floral.
0: I'm putting a flower. I have a flower in my hair right now. <laughs> oh, see? Fabulous. Perfect. I can say that because it's, you know, not in visual. I know. We can't see each other. We can't see each other. That's right. So, um, look, we're almost out of time. Um, and, and we could go on, I know, for another two or three hours Surely. Um, yes, uh, but you, I know you're all over the socials. Um, I've been following your tour on Instagram. <laughs> oh, thank your you. About being a middle, minimalist <laughs> with all your stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that was
1: outrageous. That, uh,
0: that was um,
1: the end. That photo was at the end of three and a half weeks on the road in my rental car, driving from Brisbane. Um, down to the Mornington Peninsula and sort of back uh, to Melbourne, stopping at regional towns all along the way just to visit incredible booksellers and to be reminded that bookshops and libraries really are the heart of any town. Mm-hmm. And when you travel in a car, you don't have flight restrictions to worry about. So I got in the car with one suitcase and a, like a carry-on bag and I got out of the car with literally a trolley, which I had to... Pat and i had to you know i had to pay excess baggage maggie we can't we can't pretend otherwise it was amazing <laughs> um so, it was amazing
0: yeah, yeah wonderful. it's been it's been almost as much not quite but almost as much fun for me to follow it as it has been for you to be on it. <laughs> and, and i didn't have to pay extra baggage um you've got a blog oh. You're on Facebook. Where would you recommend listeners? Listeners, you have to get this book um, and and you know follow Holly everywhere. Um, where do you think the best place for them to find out more about you and the book would be? I
1: mean, I think I think maybe the best place is, um, I mean, largely because of algorithms. I'd probably say Instagram is maybe the best because it's visual and. Um, uh there's maybe a little bit more engagement there, I guess, like in terms of being able to see content a bit more. Um, I usually try and post everything and make it, like I don't just do a blanket post across social media. I try and adapt each post for everywhere, but I'm on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Um so, you know, I guess basically it's anyone's favourite. I also have, I haven't sent out a newsletter in long over a year because I was too busy writing and editing the book and I didn't need anything to help me procrastinate away from doing that. But um, through my website, which is just hollyringland.com, I do have a newsletter um, sort of subscription community and once I get a little bit of time... Uh, some quiet time to myself again. I'm gonna start the newsletter up and it's basically sharing things that really speak to my heart that I've discovered reading on the internet, also thoughts on writing and, and creativity. And basically it's just stuff to make you feel good, really. Because there's enough in feed to do otherwise.
0: Wonderful. That is all we have time for today. Holly, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a delight talking to you. Me, and, thank uh, you for so having me, And I'm much. sure we'll catch up again. I look forward to that. Bye. Bye.